the CNN Tea Party presidential candidate debate in 2011. The subject at hand is health care and basically whether it is a human right or a personal responsibility. The moderator, Wolf Blitzer, poses this question. A healthy 30-year-old young man has a good job, makes a good living, but decides, you know what? I'm not going to spend 200 or 300 a month for health insurance because I'm healthy. I don't need it. But, you know, something terrible happens. All of a sudden, he needs it. Who's going to pay if he goes into a coma, for example? Who pays for that? Ron Paul says he would advise the young man to take responsibility for his life and to have a major medical policy. But he doesn't have that. He doesn't have it, and he needs intensive care, Blitzer presses on. Who pays for his care? That's what freedom is all about, Paul responds, taking your own risks. This whole idea that you have to prepare and take care of everybody, his frustration with such an unreasonable notion does not even allow him to end the sentence. Blitzer asks, but congressman, are you saying the society should just let him die? And in the pause before Paul answers, there is heard a yes from the audience. And then another yes. And a smattering of applause and a couple weak cheers. In June of 2018, at Nana D's Diner in Mesa, Arizona, a reporter asked customers how they felt about family separations at the U.S.-Mexico border. A woman named Madeline Carroll replied, I think people need to stop constantly bringing up the poor children, the poor children. The parents are the problems. They're the ones coming in illegally. Quit trying to make us feel teary-eyed for the children. A 2007 New York Times article reported that computer technology corporation Oracle founder Lawrence J. Ellison's net worth at that time was $16 billion. With a 10% rate of return, Ellison would need to spend more than $30 million a week or $183,000 an hour on something other than investments or things that can be resold simply to keep from accumulating more than he already had. In other words, he would have to spend $183,000 an hour just to try and hold his net worth down to a modest $16 billion. Now, whatever your opinion is about the politics behind these stories, however you respond to the ethical implications of shouted support of the hypothetical prospect of a young man's death, or the angry refusal to feel empathetic toward real children separated from their parents at the border as part of U.S. policy, or the accumulation of an individual fortune so vast that it is virtually impossible to keep it from growing, and the most recent figure on Ellison's net worth is $64 billion, which puts him around fifth 
richest person in the world. Whatever you feel about the particulars of these stories, it seems to me that there is one underlying assumption that inspires them all. Not enough. There is not enough to go around. Ever. Never. Enough. The assumption of never enough is sewn into the very fabric of the culture in such a way that we are all clothed in it. We are taught to approach most issues, to respond to other people, and to view our very selves from the standpoint of scarcity. What I have is not enough. Not enough to get by, not enough for retirement, not enough to be able to reach my goals, not enough to be able to feel secure. And if I give from what little I have, I will have less. I will be less. I cannot afford compassion. I cannot afford empathy. I don't have enough time or patience to walk a mile in my neighbor's shoes. I cannot risk generosity when I'm afraid that I will not have what I need. And if there is not enough, then one could assume that the more I have, in this case, let's say money, one could assume that the more money I have, the closer I am to contentment. Right? Now, while there is little doubt that having enough money to sustain oneself and meet immediate needs is much less stressful than the struggle and pain and multiple injustices of living in poverty, it turns out that this positive impact is not multiplied with the further multiplication of one's riches. I don't mean to ignore or dismiss the realities that many people live with of truly not having enough. But the societal syndrome that touches us all, the existential anxiety that I speak of, is another thing entirely. That follows people across the whole spectrum of financial circumstances. The 2007 article from the New York Times that I spoke about earlier in reference to Lawrence Ellison was entitled, For the Super Rich, Too Much is Never Enough. And a 2018 article from The Atlantic entitled, The Reason Many Ultra-Rich People Aren't Satisfied with Their Wealth. Both of these articles come to the same conclusion that the motivation for the ultra-super-rich people was not to buy the things they wanted. They had wildly more than they would ever need to buy all they wanted. Nor to leave it to their children. They not only had more than they could ever spend, but more than their children could ever spend. And it was not to give it away. Though the super rich make charitable donations, this figure has not risen in proportion to their riches and is, for the most part, a very small percentage of their wealth. And it did not make them feel ever that they had enough. All the way up the income wealth spectrum, said researcher Michael Norton, a Harvard Business School professor. Basically, everyone, all the way up the income wealth spectrum, says they'd need two or three times as much to be perfectly happy. All the way up, wherever they were, on that wealth spectrum, same answer, two or three times as much. 
It echoes John D. Rockefeller's words from another age. He was asked how much money was enough. Just a little bit more, he said. Why? Because they see others who have more. That's what was concluded in these articles. Competition drives much of this. The strive to get more and more and more and more and more and more because someone else has something I don't or because I can then get something that they don't have or maybe I can silence for just a bit this anxiety, this ever-present worry that if I am not getting ahead, then I am falling behind and I can't stand or sit or lay down or be with this incessant, unceasing, nagging suspicion that I, as I am, am not enough, ever, never enough. But what then? If I am assured there is not enough, and I'm further assured that taking and making and having and hoarding will not ever make me feel that there is enough, what then? I'm reminded of a Sufi story adapted from Rumi. One day a wise woman saw a crowd gathered around the swimming pool in the park. A wealthy man from the neighborhood who was, alas, best known for being a miser, had fallen in the deep end of the pool, could not swim, and was calling for help. The people who had gathered were trying to help, leaning over and saying, Give me your hand, sir, give me your hand. But the man didn't pay attention to their offer to rescue him. He kept wrestling with the water and flailing about and shouting for help. Finally, the wise woman stepped forward, Let me handle this. She stretched out her hand toward the man and shouted at him, Take my hand. To everyone's surprise, the man grabbed her outstretched hand, was pulled to the side of the pool, and was hoisted out by those who stood nearby. We tried to rescue him before you came, they said to her. We offered help, but he wouldn't listen. They asked her to explain what she had done differently. What was her secret? Some of you may have guessed already. It is very simple, she replied. I knew this miser was not likely to give anything to anyone. So instead of saying, give me your hand, I said, take my hand. And sure enough, he took it. (laughs) By living in this state of not enough, By accepting the mistaken notion that giving depletes us, that giving threatens our lives, we cut ourselves off from that which can save us. I don't believe, like I told the children, that it is better to give than to receive. I think they are one, and that denying either of them cuts us off from that which provides us life itself. They are as natural as breathing and hailing exhaling, try to live through the day without either one. We all have something to give. Each one of us can be a light of love to the world. It is not generosity that threatens our well-being. It is the denial of our natural inclination to give of ourselves, to share, to recognize that we are connected, to celebrate the fact that we travel this road together. 
So come on, Reverend, you're just talking about generosity because it's the pledge campaign kickoff, right? You're working up to the ask. I want you to pledge to this congregation, no doubt about it, because I believe that our mission rocks and that we have something to offer to this world. I want you to make a pledge of whatever amount works for you because I believe that our congregation offers something unique to the struggle for justice, that this congregation offers something unique, a unique form of caring community, that this congregation offers unique opportunities to nurture spiritual growth, to practice justice, and to inspire joy, and that it wouldn't happen the way that it does without the work and dedication of the amazing staff with whom I have the honor to work. Staff members that did not receive the raises recommended last year and have not received their full recommended raises for two of the last three years before that that it would not happen without amazing lay leaders whom we wish to support with leadership development opportunities and funding of the creative programs to which they dedicate their time and talents, that it would not happen without this place, this building, this location that allows people to connect with us and for us to extend hospitality to the community that it would not happen without Unitarian Universalism, the association of congregations with whom we are connected in covenant and creativity, that it would not happen the way it does without kitchen and cleaning and worship supplies and computers and printers and websites and word programs and music scores and guest speakers and guest musicians and guest teachers. Yes, I absolutely invite you to exercise your generosity muscles in what you give to this congregation. And the greater wish, honestly, is that we here challenge the cultural narrative about never enough with a countercultural narrative about the power of generosity within and beyond these walls. I want us to inspire and nurture and support generosity whatever form it takes and wherever it is directed. I want us to become a laboratory of generosity experimentation. I want us to supplement random acts of kindness with intentional acts of kindness. What's wrong with planning? What's to keep us from having a practice schedule of generosity? The message of not enough seeks to convince us that generosity creates vulnerability, that it exposes us, makes life unsafe, increases insecurity. We know better. Generosity does not create vulnerability, but it does remind us that we are inherently vulnerable. Generosity assures us that it is okay to be vulnerable because we are here with and for each other. We are vulnerable. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, and no amount of time closing our eyes and ears and screaming, la, 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 will change that fact. And no amount of wealth accumulation will change that fact. And no efforts to isolate ourselves in an effort to feel secure will change that fact. It will not make us safe or secure. It will not protect us. In fact, 
it is killing us. Because the fact is that we are here to give just as much as we are here to live. If you cannot sing like angels, if you cannot speak before thousands, you can give from deep within you. You can change the world with your love. Each one of us can bring the light of love to the world. Come and go with me to that land. We travel this road together.